This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to the latest episode of the AJ Bell Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth, and this week we're going to be talking about why global stock markets have taken a bit of a wobble of late and how there are easier ways to make money at the moment. Joining me on the show is Laura Souter. Hi there. I've got some good news for anyone in a minimum wage job, as there is a pay rise on its way for you. I'll also be talking about ways to make some easy money through switching your bank account and where to find the best rates on short-term savings. This week's special guest is Richard Sem from Pantheon Infrastructure, who talks to Danny Hewson about the opportunities and pitfalls of investing in global digital networks as connectivity becomes more important. And we'll also be looking at how some of the most popular apps and streaming services increasingly want more money from users. But first up, let's take a look at what's been happening in the markets over the past week. Dan, what's been going on? Well, it's not been a great week, to put it mildly. Um, we've seen <laughs> government bond yields are sort of moving much higher. And I think it's kind of making it hard for sort of stocks and shares to press ahead. So the, the 10 year US Treasury yield. So this is the US government bond that hit 4.88%. Um, and I think what's happening here is that um, yields on bonds rise as prices fall. So investors seem to be taking the view that the US economy is in, in kind of a, a more resilient shape than perhaps people thought before. Um, of course, the consequences of that means is that interest rates could stay higher for longer as central banks kind of say, well, you know, we're not, perhaps not worried about um, you know hurting the the economy if if interest rates keep going up. What we're trying to do here is to try and contain inflation. So if the economy looks okay, we'll keep on this path. And so you know, ten year treasuries at four point eight eight percent is the highest level since mid two thousand and seven. Now I know certainly that you, know, you go cast your mind back and think, okay, what happened in mid two thousand seven? That was the eve of the global financial crisis. So um, I don't think we're saying, no one's saying at the moment there's going to be sort of a, a big market crash, but I, I do think that equities might sort of be range bound for a bit. Um, first of all, you have to think that, you know, if, if it's going to be higher rates for longer, so higher borrowing costs make life harder for companies and consumers. Also, you have to think about how stock market valuations work. So higher yields erode the present value of future earnings. So, And that just sort of tends to weigh on, on sort of equity valuations. So I guess if you add all these things up, you, you, you could perhaps understand why in the US, the S&P 500 index is down about 6% over the last month. Germany's DAX index is down about 5%. And you know, the FTSE 100, it did make some progress, but it's lost all of those gains over that period. It's now just sort of flat on the month. So so really here, we've got a situation where um, everyone's looking at the bond market once again. Um, and, and you have to sort of think, well, central banks have been big buyers of bonds over the last decade, but perhaps that's not going to be the case going forward. Um, so reduced demand for bonds kind of equates to to lower prices and high yields. So um, it's a bit of sort of a, a recalibration of what's going on in the markets. And I think now people are going, well, hang on a minute. I thought that central banks were going to be sort of uh, perhaps reaching the peak of their rate heights, you know, and that should theoretically be a, a positive turning point for equities. But is that now the case? Because we just had some job figures from the US implying 
1.5 open jobs per unemployed person, um, despite these interest rates shooting up. So uh, unfortunately, I think that means that it raises the risk that we could actually see another rate hike in the US soon. And that might not go down very well with the market. Now, I'm going to offer a bright spot amid all that doom and gloom. We had some good news out this week um, that showed that food prices fell for the first time in two years. So this was data out from the British Retail Consortium um, looking at that food inflation. And hot on the heels of that, we've had Tesco just reporting its latest results just as we record this podcast. So, Dan, in light of that drop in food inflation, how has the company been getting on? Yeah, brilliantly. I mean, obviously, we started the pod with a bit of bad news. But here's an example of a company that's doing very well. Sales were up um, in six months, the end of August by 8.4%. Obviously, that's that's mainly due to sort of higher prices um, across the board with food and drink. But obviously, now these are starting to come down here. But actually, retail profits grew by 13.5% to 1.4 billion pounds. Now, the company's been cutting its costs and at the same time, it's actually been attracting more customers. So um, I think all in all, it's doing really well. If you think about the competitive pressures from, from people like uh, Aldi and Lidl, also Sainsbury's has sort of been sharpening its focus on food as well. I think Tesco is doing all right. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, Laura, but if, if, whether you're a Tesco shopper, but if, you, if you're not, you go into its stores now, you'll notice that you, it's almost like two different prices. A cheaper price if you use its club card. Oh, it's scheme. my biggest bugbear. And <laughs> Sainsbury's has just copied it as well. So I think we're going to be seeing this much more. And there's such a huge price difference on some of them. So if you forget your club card, then you're paying so much over the odds. Well, I, I did have that the other day and, and some kind soul uh, next to me sort of volunteered and said, oh, would you like my club card? It's like, of course, they, oh, they want the points. What a nice person. But yeah, so you know, it, it prompted me to to download it, um, stick it on the app. Um, so I've always got it, you know, to worry about carrying that physical card. But I, I don't know. I think it's a clever way to get people to to join the loyalty scheme because you have to think about what, what does a club card really bring to Tesco? And it's about, you know, it's data on customer shopping habits, customer behavior. So it's really good at analyzing that. So it can tailor offers to customers in the future and it can just get a really good sense of what's selling and what's not. So, I, you know, it's a smart move from from Tesco. Uh, I'm not surprised to see other people sort of copying this. Um, but, you know, one, one thing that really struck me from, from the results was, you know, Tesco as a business is experiencing two tailwinds. Now it's got one from people who are trading down from more expensive supermarkets. The other is actually seems to be selling more sort of posh food under the finest brand. It looks to me that people perhaps want to treat themselves at home rather than eating out. So obviously you've got this sort of, you know, the cost of living pressures is still there. Um, but I think, you know, it, it, Tesco seems to hit on a winning formula here. And obviously as global commodity prices are falling, Tesco is cutting its prices, and I think that that should earn it a lot of respect from you know from shoppers. I can certainly you know think that there's been lots of companies who have pushed up their prices and saying you know we're just passing on our costs. It's just the the way of doing business. But as those costs fall, there's going to be loads of businesses who aren't going to cut their prices. So, so to see Tesco actually do this, I think it's definitely a positive in my view. 
And it kind of plays into the fact that, that shoppers have got to vote with their feet a bit and, and actually move to the companies that are cutting prices as we start to see wholesale prices fall, because that's going to be the biggest driver of companies changing their activity, isn't it? If they start to lose customers because they're not lowering prices where maybe their rivals are, then that is going to be a big prompt for them to, to cut prices. And that's what we've seen in the supermarket sector, isn't it? That fierce competition and people shopping around has led to lower prices. Yeah, I mean, this this idea of, of competition over prices, it, it goes beyond, obviously, the supermarket sector. We, we've seen this in sort of the fashion industry. So I wanted to just talk about Boohoo. Share price is at five-year low now. And, and part of the problem here is that Boohoo's got really strong competition from um, this Chinese business, which we were talking about the other day on the podcast, called Xin. Um, mm-hmm. offering very, very cheap clothes. And so it's really hard for a company like Boohoo or even ASOS to, to sort of compete on these prices. The trouble is, at the same time, the costs for these businesses have, have gone up. So Boohoo's profit margins have been squeezed. It's, ha- it's been having a terrible time for a couple of years now. And it, it, you know, I guess a while back, it announced a big sort of, you know, this is the future. This is our turnaround program. Not quite working so far. So it came out the other day it was saying it's going to have to cut more costs and it, it slashed its sales forecast saying you know, sales could fall by up to 17% this year. Um, so yeah, very, very tough time for Boohoo. And obviously that's reflected in its share price weakness. It's trying to focus on more profitable sales, but really it does have no choice but to cut prices to stay competitive. Or, you know, this is the term that I, I, I can't stand it. it. You read these announcements of companies and they all say that they're investing in price. What investing doesn't. <laughs> what yeah. does that even mean? It just means they're cutting their prices. <laughs> it's just, it's just, <laughs> there's no point trying to gloss over it. Just say we're, cut, we're making things cheaper. But um, yeah, Boohoo. Well, you know, I guess it's a good, accurate description of its company name of what's happening with the company that's at the moment. <laughs> so I think, you know, obviously, given the market volatility, um, it's kind of understandable that people are looking at cash as a safer way of making money. Perhaps in the short term, everyone knows that you know investing over the longer term, history suggests you, you can make more money that way. But at the moment, cash has become a lot more in people's minds because this sharp rise in interest rates means you can get much better rates. So one of the ways um, to make a bit of money off cash is, is obviously Put it in a bank or build in society um, because actually you can get some fairly interesting rates at the moment. So, Laurel, what, what sort of rates can you get at the moment and, and perhaps who's paying the best? Yeah, so I think something that's really interesting at the moment is NSNI, so National Savings and Investments, which is the government-backed savings provider. That is actually the, the market leader when it comes to one-year fixed-rate accounts. Now, we've seen fixed-rate accounts become hugely more popular um, over the past year as the rates on them have, have risen alongside Bank of England base rate rising. Um but it's very rare for NSNI to be the market leader. Usually it likes to hover kind of in, in the top echelons of those best buy tables, but it doesn't usually want to lead the market. Um, but actually, in this case, it's got two different products, um, both paying 6.2% uh, for a one-year fixed account. The One of the products is called a guaranteed growth bond, um, and one's called the guaranteed income bond. The only difference between them is the growth bond pays all of that interest at maturity, so at the end of the year, whereas the income bond pays out that interest monthly. So it kind of depends whether you are 
relying on that income each month to help um, your living expenses or whether you can let it compound over time and um, and get it paid out at the end. Um, but it's I think it's an interesting kind of turn of events. And what we're seeing at the moment really is a lot of talk about the fact that we might be at peak interest rates. And so obviously the Bank of England deciding not to raise rates in its most recent meeting gives a hint that maybe this might be the peak. There might be maybe one more increase to come is what market commentators are expecting. Um, but broadly, this is pretty much as good as it's going to get or near to um, for cash savers. So there have been a lot of cash savers that have been sitting on the sidelines thinking, I'm going to wait before I lock in and I'm going to wait for a higher rate and a higher rate. And I think whilst it's impossible to predict exactly peak interest rates, I think we're around that time now. And so offers like this one from NSNI um, pay more than 6% for that one year fix. I think that that will be very popular. And that solves one of the problems that NSNI has got, which is it hasn't been particularly popular this year. Um, it struggled a bit to attract more saver money. I think part of that might be that the prize drawer of premium bonds maybe isn't as appealing when you can get guaranteed interest rates elsewhere rather than the gamble that you might win big on premium bonds, but you also might win nothing. Um and just there's been so much more competition that, that there's better rates elsewhere and people have actually been withdrawing money um, from NSNI. So they've had to go out with this big showstopper to try and attract more saver money in. But the thing is, we don't know when when the product will be withdrawn. We don't know how much money they want to make and how much of savers money they want to draw in. Once they reach that limit, then they'll um, you know, end this version of the accounts and, and issue a new one with a lower interest rate. Um, so I think it's interesting story. It's a great account if you want a one year fix, but it's also a kind of call to action if you are one of those cash savers that's been sitting on the sidelines um, potentially waiting for another increase in interest rates, then it might be a good time to think about, about locking in and about working out which accounts are best for you. Now, it's not just in the savings market where banks as sort of, um, financial institutions that are sort of trying to sort of fight over um, winning customers by offering sort of generous things. It's actually in the current account market as well. So I think I think this obviously that's a good thing for, for, for customers because it just means that there's more incentives for people to switch. So Laura, what are we seeing at the moment there with, with sort of um, deals to sort of move your bank account somewhere else? Huge incentives to move, um, really attractive at the moment, and actually relatively minimal hassle to switch your current account. Lots of people think back to previous times when you had to kind of manually do that whole process of switching current accounts. Now there's something called the Current Account Switching Service, or CAS as it's called by that trendy acronym. <laughs> um, and that takes care of a lot of the process for you. It will move your direct debits um, and all of your payments from your old current account to your new current account. So it kind of takes care of it for you. And to get a lot of these incentives that banks are offering for switching current accounts, you have to use that service. So the top one at the moment is with Nationwide. So you can get £200 for switching to Nationwide. A lot of these accounts have 
other perks as well. Some will offer um, their current account customers a higher regular savings account or an interest-free overdraft or um, higher interest on the money sitting in the current account. So it's definitely worth kind of shopping around and working out which features are best for you. Um, but it's not just nationwide. We've got First Direct are offering £175 for switching. So is Lloyd's. TSB is offering £150. Co-op, if a friend refers you, then you both get £125. So if you're in a couple and one of you is with co-op already, you could get £250 just from one of you switching um, with the other one recommending you. Um, And so I think it's a really good way of making a bit of extra money if you're someone who doesn't have a lot of money sitting in savings um, and so you can't benefit from those higher interest rates or if you've just got a bit of time to spare. The one thing I would, well, there's two things I would highlight. The first is there's always some terms and conditions attached to these account switches. Some are a bit more onerous than others. Mostly they require you to switch and move some direct debits over, which for most people would be fine because they would have that on their existing current account at the moment anyway. Others have a bit more onerous. You have to log on to an online banking or you have to pay a certain amount of money in. Interestingly, with um, Nationwide, it doesn't have that many restrictions on it. So to get that top £200 switching bonus is actually relatively simple. Um, The second thing to highlight is this money that you get from the bank is tax-free. So unlike the interest on your savings accounts, which will be taxed once you go over your personal savings allowance, um, because of a strange way how this money is categorized as an incentive rather than interest, um, it's tax-free and doesn't count towards your personal savings allowance. So the issue a lot of savers are seeing at the moment is that they're breaching that tax-free personal savings allowance and they're going to be paying tax on their savings. Um, So this is a great way of making a bit of extra money and it's tax-free. And I think the other thing to highlight is that you don't need to be loyal to these banks that you're switching to. Um, Some of them will pay out the bonus after a certain period of time. They'll have a certain tie-in period. But once that's up, there's nothing to stop you then switching again to another account and getting another switching bonus. So you can potentially do this multiple times a year and make hundreds of pounds just from relatively minimal admin hassle. I mean, there's nothing to you can say. There's nothing to stop you having multiple current accounts as well. So I mean, this is the sort of the beauty of it. You can't. There isn't restrictions to say you know it's one or um, stick with it. But I think if you are sort of playing the market, I mean, I remember this is going back to you go back twenty years when everyone was switching to zero cent credit cards, and it was called rate tarts, mm. wasn't it? So the, yeah, the description. But I think you know if you are doing this, it might be worth. You know, keep keep a you know a word document or a spreadsheet, or something just to mm. remind yourself what you're doing. Perhaps if you've moved a certain number of direct debits over, keep a plan. It's really and also if you're taking out any of these sort of savings accounts for a year, make, put put a, put something down maybe in a in a calendar to say you know this is when I need to look at it next year because um, I certainly you know I've just had I took out a, a, a savings account a year just it was a year ago. Um, I, just, I thought, oh, that must be coming up now. And of course, you look at the the deal it's now moved on to is really poor. So I know that I need mm. to move my money to keep getting a, a better deal. So you know, staying on top of your finances, you, I know lots of people say that, but um, it's better to plan for it now as you're doing it rather than coming back in a year's time and think, oh, crikey, what did I do? Let's retrospectively try and remember. But um, Yeah, definitely. So I think, you know, just, just finally on this topic, I think that Another way to to obviously earn a little bit of extra money is to to get a pay rise, and there's definitely some good news for um, those on minimum wages in the UK. 
Yeah, so we've had the Tory party conference this week and obviously a lot of the coverage has been around HS2 and various other things happening at the conference. But um, we heard from the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, um, and he confirmed that from April next year, the minimum wage will increase to at least £11 an hour. So they have to wait for a recommendation um, from a certain committee or organisation um, to say what the minimum wage should rise to. But he's pledged that it will rise to at least £11 an hour, if not more. Now, at the moment, it's at £10.42 an hour. There are different rates of the minimum wage. Um, what I'm talking about here is for those aged 23 and older. Um younger people and apprentices get different rates. Um, but this is another big increase. So we had a near 10% increase in the minimum wage um, in April this year. And this is almost 6% increase if it went up to £11 an hour. And it means that someone who is working full time, working 35 hours a week um, on minimum wage, their salary will now increase to over £20,000 a year for the first time. So it's a decent boost for those people. Obviously, inflation has eaten in a lot to um, people's wages this year, and that's the same for those on minimum wage. So it's a much needed increase for people's wages to keep up with um, rising costs. But it's a bit of good news for those on minimum wage. Now, let's just move on to our next topic which is about social media and streaming so laura i've got this really important question for you how much would you pay to use instagram whatsapp or facebook oh i would pay nothing for instagram because i'm constantly trying to delete it and not look at it i would pay nothing for facebook because i'm not on it anymore um whatsapp i use every single day so i probably would yeah i would pay for that but maybe five pounds a month at most yeah i mean i think it's it's an interesting question uh i think it's one that lots of people are going to have to start to think about meta platforms which owns instagram and, and whatsapp and, and facebook so there's talk that this company is going to sort of lay out this condition so if you're in the eu um this is that the report suggests you'll have to pay uh, a small subscription fee if you don't want to have your personal information used to have targeted advertising. Um, so it's re re report suggests if you're on your phone, it'll be 13 euros a month for Instagram. Or if you're using a computer, what? Be, yeah, 10, 10 euros for Facebook or Instagram. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's all to do, you know, do you, it's, it's like, you know, do you want to sort of, happily have anything or do you would you have you know you want to look after your information don't want to have to give it up what what do you, would you want to pay that sort of money laura i wouldn't pay that money and i think probably it would just be a really good prompt for me to not use it anymore because i don't think i actually need instagram in my life really i'm not sure it's it's benefiting me in any way whereas whatsapp there's an actual practical usage for that i use that to keep in touch with friends and family although i guess there's nothing to say we couldn't all switch to a different messaging platform so, I mean, it, it, it's all to do with discussions with the regulator in the EU. They've sort of been seeking to sort of curb the way big tech companies profit from, from the data that essentially they get, they get this data from their users for free and then they're able to um, obviously attract more, more advertising. If they can say to their advertisers, um, you know, here's the people you really want to be targeting. We have this information. Then obviously it's good for them. 
But, you know, I, I just think it's going to be an interesting one. I wonder whether people will say, um, you know, a fraction of users are only going to actually be happy to pay. So pretty much everyone will just essentially give their consent to have targeted advertising. But then there's this argument that, you know, should your privacy rights be for sale, um, you know, in this situation, it's only rich people who can afford to say, no, no. I, I don't want you to to use this information. So, um, uh, yeah, it's it's it, you know it's a great it's great sort of a big debate and something you know for for a wider platform for us to discuss another time. But but it got me thinking that there's quite a few of these social media, all sort of broader sort of streaming platforms that are asking customers for more money. I mean, TikTok is reportedly testing a new monthly subscription where you wouldn't have any advertising at all. Um, obviously, Netflix brought in a cheaper tier uh, fairly recently for its subscription for streaming stuff where you, you pay cheaper price, but then you have to put up with adverts. Now, Amazon Prime, saying the same thing, you know, you can have adverts or you actually pay a little bit more to, to do away with them. But then, you know, we, I've got Spotify in my account in my house. And, and, you know, I think here is like a lot of people seem to be happy to pay not to have advertising because that kind of spoils the listening experience. But Equally, I, I'm happy to use YouTube and I'm happy to put up the ads. I don't really find them that intrusive. So, um, yeah, I just I, I wonder what, you know, are we in a sort of a transition period here where you've had all these sort of really popular platforms? People are so, you know, they're like the, the top things people use day in, day out. Naturally, these companies are trying to find ways to make more money. Um and we're just going to have to put up with it. I guess this is the concept of pricing power, isn't it? How much can you push up your prices before demand is affected? And um, I think all these brands I've just been talking about are so enriched in people's lives um, that they, you know, they might have a case that they can keep doing this. So um, I suspect what we might see as well is some brands push it too far and then have to come back down it must be very hard for these brands to effectively gauge how much people are willing to pay um and i suspect what we might see is some will inch up perhaps others might come in with a very high price and then have to climb down slightly from that when they realize that people are quite happy to to ditch that rather than pay oh well so all the money that you've um, managed to to make on your cash savings and from switching your bank account. <laughs> oh, coming in you can spend game. on all these. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's also keeping track of it. I mean, if you think about streaming services and how many the average household has, then if you throw in more subscriptions to this, it's keeping track of how many subscriptions you have and the total cost of those um, going out. It's a bit overwhelming. Well, I mean, t- Twitter or X as it's now called, um, been threatening people with, the idea of you know everyone might have to pay to use it. I mean, to me, like that platform is proof of how you fiddle with what was um, seemed to be you know, from a user experience. The model was perfect; um, didn't need to mess with it. I mean, you know, constant changes with stuff. You just seen the if just I don't know from a user perspective, it feels like that that community is dwindled. The platform mm. is you know and it's, it's heading for you know does it even have a future? Um, yeah. so, I mean, that might be sort of a, a case study of how things can go wrong very quickly. Definitely.
Um, but it's time for this week's special guest now. So Richard Sem is a portfolio manager at Pantheon Infrastructure, which is an investment trust which has big interest in digital infrastructure. The pandemic highlighted the growing need for a better global connectivity and the race to AI means demand is increasing. But it's not all been plain sailing. Richard thinks that investors need to think beyond the current economic volatility. Danny Houston recently met up with him and started by asking him for an overview of the trust. So Pint is, um, is, is a globally diversified portfolio of infrastructure for assets. So we've committed to about 458 million investments. Um, we've done that across 13 assets across predominantly North America and Europe um, with you know, some focus on Australia as well. I'm really looking to benefit from some of the mega trends of globalization, digitalization, and the transition to net zero. Um, types of assets we're focused on are core, core plus type assets. So these are a little bit higher up the risk curve than some of the uh, more income focused infrastructure uh, uh, investment trusts out there. And really looking to get that stronger diversification because we think in uncertain times, diversification uh, is is very important uh, to, to 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 giving downside protection, inflation protection to uh, to, uh, to to people's portfolios. Um, very much focus on growth. Um, so it's not just about that income. And um, we also want to get some growth. Um, so trying to find assets where we can you know, get the benefit of inflation protection, get the downside protection, but also get some capital appreciation. And we get that typically from um, finding opportunities to build additional capacity um, within our portfolios. So an example recently is we committed 35 million to Zenobi. Um, this is quite an exciting deal um, in that um, it has two sort of main business lines. Uh, the first one is uh, grid battery services, um, which obviously is very important um, in, in terms of kind of balancing the intermittency of supply uh, caused by renewables on the grid. And I think in this podcast, you've probably heard about a lot about the renewables and what that's doing. So um, this is obviously very critical, um, but also um, electrification of the bus fleet. Um, so both of these lines, both of these business lines benefit from long-term contracts, strong indexation, uh, providing kind of that certainty of cash flow and, and very good downside protection. And that kind of gives us our base return. But then what we're looking to try and do is build um, additional upside through winning new contracts um, and, and, and being able to invest capital and grow these businesses ahead of kind of de-risking them and then realizing those investments, which I think is an important differentiator for the, uh, for the trust. So you spoke of difficult times. I mean, let's be fair, we have had some pretty volatile, choppy waters since you IPO'd in 2021. You were oversubscribed, but looking at the shares down 17% year to date, What's going on? Um, it's it's been a tough market, um, no doubt about that. Um, it's quite unprecedented. I know a lot of people use that word, um, but we've had an environment um, since the first investment trust launched in two thousand six. These investment trusts are traded at a premium, um, and this is they've had some short periods of time where they've traded to a discount, but they've popped back up to premium pretty quickly because investors like the downside protection, the inflation protection. Um, I, I think I think where we are right now, the whole sector is off. So this is not a pint-specific issue. This is an infrastructure investment trust-specific issue. Um, and I think 
the uncertainty in the world, um, people are focused on it. You know, where where is inflation going? Where are interest rates going? That rising um, that rising rate environment we're in, and then the recession. Um, and you know, just normal day to day cost of living is increasing. So repaying mortgages because they're coming off fixed rates is driving a lot of outflows um, from uh, from people's investment portfolios. Um, there's also quite a lot of capital uh, we understand moving into um, into fixed income, and you know whilst there's a lot of focus on you know a, a, effectively a risk a, a, a more risk-free type return being generated from fixed income, what you're not getting is that inflation protection. So if you look at most fixed income portfolios, they're generating you know, somewhere around about inflation or a little bit less than inflation. So you're actually um, only just about keeping up with inflation. By using infrastructure, our thesis is that you can actually benefit from a much uh, a much greater um, uh, inflation protection and therefore participate um, in some growth as well as that, as well as um, just that sort of fixed income nature. So let's focus on the digital bit. Um, because we were talking before we started um, this podcast about the use of technology, homeworking, those video conferencing calls, all of those things need that connectivity. It is becoming more and more and more important. So what are we talking about in terms of Pantheon's investment, Pint's investment, uh, and the sort of proportion of the investment portfolio that is in this digital technology. Yeah, no, it's it's incredible the tailwinds, and um, there's a lot of talk about the tailwinds, and I think it's important also just to kind of sort of lift the lid and look at um, some of the drivers because not all digital is the same. Um, so maybe you know, the, if we if we talk about say the way we're accessing the internet, I mean that has changed fundamentally. It was about forty percent growth in uh, mobile data usage uh, over the last year, um, obviously facilitated by 5G, and that's allowing us to stream movies, to um, listen to music, play games, Internet of Things. Everything is connected. Um, and that's certainly been a theme uh, before um, when we went from 3G to 4G and now 4G to 5G. So if you think about how the value chain of digital works, you've got towers on one side, so you need the mobile towers to be able to connect from our mobile device to then the fiber backhaul. That fiber backhaul then goes to the data center. And then from the data center, back out again, whether it's a fiber to the home, fiber to the office, or back to another tower where it goes zipped out to another mobile phone. So that is kind of the value chain of digital. Um, all of them have slightly different risk profiles. Um, and we're diversified across all three. So we're always looking to try and find opportunities where we can generate the best risk-adjusted returns. So, you know, if we look at the tower sector specifically, um, you know, there you're not taking the technology risk of the equipment move from 4G to a 5G. That's a mobile network operators. We make that real estate available. We get long-term contracts, index-linked cash flows, and are able to generate that for the long term. Where do we get the growth from? We get the growth from either attaching new um, new mobile network operators to our tower or mobile network operators attaching 5G equipment um, beside their 4G equipment because they've got both going on. So that's kind of how we're looking at the digital space currently. 
there will be people listening who've got experience of investing in telcos and they know that this kind of infrastructure needs constant investment in order to to keep it relevant so what does that mean for your investment and the sort of length of profitability yeah so um you know the cycles of uh, i talked about it before the four the 3g to 4g 4g to 5g that is just um keeps providing new investment opportunities um it is uh, quite difficult for some of the incumbent MNOs, mobile network operators, and incumbent telcos to be able to keep up with that investment pace. So a lot of that investment comes out to um, infrastructure investors, third-party capital. So um, it is a is a great way to to play um, that sector, um, and you know we see the the investment needs being pretty material over the next three to four years. Um, if we and, and that's from the mobile towers, but you, know, you also look at the data centers. Um, data centers have obviously benefited from the same growth in volumes, um, but we want ever quicker access. We want lower latency when we're accessing um, websites from our servers or from, or from our mobile devices. And so, you know, there's been a, a tremendous need for data centers which have got that fiber connectivity having grid capacity because they use a lot of um, use a lot of energy and then I guess obviously the the trend to net zero and trying to decarbonize that equipment as well so all of that requires a lot of investment um you know one of the uh, one of the major trends we've seen recently is everybody's fascination with uh, with AI and so again um, that's just driving additional investment need um, to be able to do all of that processing um, through these data centers and having those data centers ever closer to the end user. So uh, finding finding land banks close to um, close to urban centers um, to try and reduce that latency and try and increase the speeds. So you're investing in stuff, in infrastructure. It lasts a long time, but by its nature, it's also relatively illiquid. So on the one hand, investing in infrastructure provides opportunity, but on the other hand, for some investors, it might sound alarm bells. Yeah, I think um, you know infrastructure is a long-term investment, uh, and you know clearly investment should be looked at in the long term. You know we're trying to provide investment opportunity for people's pension funds. Um, so again, they're typically long dated um, uh, in the UK, obviously. Um, ISAs and, and other investment products um, so that you can benefit from um, not only that uh, growth that we talked about, but again, trying to protect um, wealth from inflation um, and um, that rising rate environment. So we see that as very, very important. Um, yes, there is illiquidity in the underlying investments, but the beauty of an investment trust is clearly that um, you're able to trade shares on a on a daily um minute-by-minute uh, minute basis when when the markets are open and um so that you know that 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 provides that liquidity to the end investor so there's been a lot of talk over the last few months about certainly the uk government's desire to get more people to invest in uk infrastructure in uk companies but of course when you are looking at a geographical split at geopolitical uncertainty 
those sort of political shifts can have a huge impact on investment. So is that one of the reasons that you invest globally rather than sticking in one sort of geographical area? Yes, yes, that's that's absolutely right. And yeah, I've probably said diversification a number of times, but I cannot I cannot um, stress enough how important diversification is to uh, to to an investment portfolio. So, you know, we want to get that diversification by by geography, um, by underlying regulatory regime, or by under underlying political uh, or economic um, circumstances. So, um, trying to make sure that. Um, if uh, if a regulator takes a, a negative an overly negative view in one country we've got other regulated assets in other in, in other jurisdictions um likewise um you know if you're taking some form of gdp risk you want to make sure that um if, if one country is overly exposed um maybe has higher recessionary risk um having a portfolio of different uh country risk allows us to spread that risk more, more broadly um we're actually um as we've assembled the portfolio, we've been very careful to try and limit um, GDP risk within within the portfolio. I think the um, the quant easing, um, the drying up of liquidity. I think we always had the thesis that that would lead to um, higher inflation, higher rates, and then obviously um, the recessionary risk increasing thereafter. So by focusing on 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 deals where and 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 businesses that have that um, uh, that have that long-term contracting, um, I think, protects us um, from sort of tran- from some of the risks you might get, say, for a transportation asset, um, where you're taking football risk um, in in those assets um, that may fall off in uh, in periods of recessionary risk. So, how do you pick your investments? Because, of course, um, as we're recording this, there's a lot of talk about HS2 maybe not going ahead. There's been a lot of talk about other changes to things like plans for net zero lots of flip-flopping lots of political change so how do you cut through the noise um so i mean firstly we we have a a tremendous platform um that allows us to source um very very good deal flow um we've got a great team and that team um, is obviously undertaking on a constant basis, kind of that comparing and contrasting all the different deals. We work with about 50 different sponsors. Um, so um, some of the best um, blue chip sponsor names that are out there, um, likes that you'll be familiar with. And um, by doing so, um, we're able to get access to their deal flow and co-invest alongside some of these sponsors. So it's something we've been doing for a long time now. Um, we've um, uh, invested uh, across the platform, the the wider Pantheon platform. Uh, we've got over twenty billion of assets under management, and you know I think that's important when we consider um, sort of the size of a pint. You know, pint is under five hundred million, um, so it's it's one part of our wider franchise. We're much bigger than just pint, um, and we're able to you know select um, the best risk adjusted returns at any point in time whilst always focusing on that portfolio construction. So diversified um, by sector, um, by geography, um, and then also by by sponsor. Um, and you know, not not leaving ourselves overly exposed to any um any particular um uh, risk um so that we're we're just nicely diversified. I guess for any investor, uncertainty is not helpful. 
No, and um, probably one of the reasons why share prices are trading where they're at. But um, you know, I would remind everyone that um, trading out of inflation protection and going for fixed income um, doesn't protect the longer term inflationary trends within the uh, portfolio as well as we think infrastructure can. Richard, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Danny. So that's all we have time for this week. Don't miss next week's show where James Henderson from Law Dementia has some positive things to say about UK stocks. Till then, thank you very much for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.